the unforgivable sin. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the sermon of Sunday, June 6th, 2021 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. What is the unforgivable sin? Have we done it? On the second Sunday after Pentecost, Reverend Aaron Imey has us consider this anxiety-producing sin in light of God's desire to have relationship with us. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal power. It is the Holy Spirit that, through Jesus' work on the cross, dwells in us and unites us with God. If we reject God's offer of forgiveness and friendship, we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Before we begin, anti-Semitism is spiking around the world. Anti-Semitic incidents went up 80% in the United States last month. It is imperative that Christians speak up on behalf of our Jewish neighbors. Education is a first step in preparing to speak out. Join David Pelegi in Poland as he looks at how hatred drove the Nazis to murder 6 million Jewish people, including followers of Jesus. We'll also look at how the Jews arrived in Poland and flourished there for a thousand years. Join David in Poland from August 9th through 20, 2021. We'll start in Warsaw and work our way to Krakow. We will visit medieval cities, castles, and churches to better understand the historical context of the Polish Jewish experience. We'll also touch on the Hebrew Christian communities that existed before World War II. It's not too late to join. Land cost is less than $2,000. Visit narrowbridgetour.com for more info. Narrowbridgetour.com In uh, historic worship, there's always a time when we come before the Lord together with a prayer that's for all of us. You'll find it in the second page of your program. And if you would... Uh, Bow with me before the Lord as we come to the throne of grace. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant, so, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given to us in our Savior, Jesus the Messiah, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And so we listen to the reading of God's Word. The first reading is from Genesis, chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. The next reading is Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel portion is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Please stand as we hear the good news and teachings from the Lord. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for he said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed by Baalzevuv, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, People will be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
some, some people asked this morning, is it a special day that we're wearing uh, robes? And uh, no, not really. <laughs> Just like wearing a dress, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> now you know that normally in our tradition we wear, um, we always uh, honor the Lord by wearing robes during high holidays, festivals and seasons and, and times of great import. Uh, what's so special about today? the second Sunday after Pentecost, I hear you ask? That's a very good question. Well, we're about to enter a season of time. There's this idea of seasons and times that we inherit from the synagogue, from the Jewish people, to this sort of season between Pentecost and we don't do anything until Advent, sort of nothing in the middle. Notice in the Jewish calendar, it's exactly the same. You have Shavuot and nothing happens until Yom Kippur, right? Like, whoa. So we call this ordinary time. What's so ordinary about it? Ordinary is not called ordinary because it's ordinary. It's actually named after ordinal numbers. And so they call the time, they count. Now, like counting an Omar, but they count. First, second Sunday after Pentecost, third Sunday after Pentecost, fourth Sunday after Pentecost. No one has a clue what to call it, so they call it, they just count it by numbers. And ordinary, that's it. And they change the color. And the colors are a big deal in, uh, in, the, in the Jewish world. God liked color. Decorated his tabernacle and his priests and his temple in color. And people could always tell seasons in the ancient world by looking at the color of, the, of creation. When it changed color, you knew you were in a new season. Well... In theology, you would do the same. You'd come in to gather and worship, and you looked at the color, and it was green, and it stayed green for an awfully long time. But green is a symbol of life, too. And you would sit, and you would read the good news, the word of the Lord. Life, what, what better color to, to stick on? And so green. So we're wearing our robes to say, there's been a change of season, and here we are. And the readings that are assigned for the day uh, include the very familiar stories, I'm sure, Adam and Eve, very familiar story, uh, Psalms, beautiful, great psalm. I love the prayer book, it's great. And then, of course, there's this passage in Mark, which I'm sure a lot of preachers dread when it's their turn to preach it, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because, of course, once we all read this text, we think, did I do it? Like, am, I, am I done? I'm, I mean, there's no hope. What is it? Start Googling. You know, you get all kinds of preachers telling you, you know, if you've said this, you're toast. <laughs> you go, oh my gosh. You know, this, 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 I want to put it into, into context and discuss the theme or a theme, there are lots of themes in the Bible. One of the blessings of the lectionary is every three years you keep coming up to the same text. And oddly enough, you always find something new. In fact, I swear uh, that whenever I read the Bible, somebody keeps adding new verses in. Have you noticed that? Uh, you, you pick up and you start reading and you go, wow, who put that one in there? It's even in red. Did Jesus really say that? Okay. So... I wanted to, to, to think about the blasphemy in the Holy Spirit, not in terms of, did I say X, 
but in context of the three readings, which I think talk about relationships and the relationships that we have with the living God and the deep personal relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. And because it's been Pentecost, most likely would have heard David reflect that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. You know, it's not, it's not this thing that you get that just runs around and hands out gifts and, and does miracles for you and enables you to speak in heavenly languages. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is an active, equal participant in the Godhead. Yes, yes. And we have an incredible, personal, deep relationship with God. How do I know this? Because I've got the Holy Spirit inside. How deep can you get? That's, that's, that's a nice thought. So I want to keep that as we look at our texts. Now, some of you also know that, um, that I used to hail from a Lutheran and then charismatic Anglican tradition. And uh, so when I first walked into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, I, went, I did what most um, Protestants do. I went, <coughs> but I have developed through my study with, uh, with the Jewish people to appreciate that when you worship the Lord, you worship him with all of your senses. And that includes your eyes. No one worships an icon. They are used as a device to help you look as a window into the kingdom of heaven, into the story that it's trying to present, and a window into your own soul. Because we project things. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So, brothers and sisters, what do you see? Here is a, this is actually a modern icon. This actually was created last century. This, the, the Orthodox world is actively still making icons. We even know some, uh, an Anglican guy at uh, Latrun. He makes icons, and he will not charge you because you will only make an icon if you will actually worship the Lord. It's got nothing to do with money. This is not made by him, though. Um, here we have the story of Adam and Eve, which we read in Genesis. Very familiar story. So, guys, what do you see? Yeah, not amazing. Look what they did. You know, obviously, the text doesn't say, and Jesus was walking in the garden. Okay? But obviously, you've got this issue, doesn't The text says God walked in the garden. Well, how did that happen then? Well, the text is quite blank. I love the way sometimes Hebrew scripture does this to us. It begs you to ask the question. It demands you to sit and reason and go, ah, does it work that way? And how does he talk? I mean, talking usually involves lungs and breath normally. So here you've got this guy, and they've, and they've actually done him up to look like Yeshua. And notice, typical Byzantine Yeshua, guy got long hair, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, which is the reason why Orthodox priests all have long hair. Because they're trying to look like Jesus. No, seriously, that's what they're trying to do. 
Except me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Something went wrong. <laughs> okay. All right. And there's obviously Adam and Eve, and they're trying to hide behind their little bush. Obviously, that's not working for them. Okay. And um, uh, when, how many trees are in this icon? Ooh. Well, you've got the two big ones. <laughs> now, of course, the text doesn't tell you who put the trees there. It says, God planted a garden. It doesn't say, and he put two trees in the middle of the garden. It just says, and there was a tree of life in the garden. I'll say that he put it there. Because you've got a question. If God knows that Adam and Eve are going to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, then why would he put it there in the first place? Hmm. And so in Jewish exegesis, if anybody wants to know, they, uh, they actually say that the tree of knowledge was put there by the dude. <laughs> and they, 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 they call him Samael, the venom of God, and they're linking him to the serpent. Okay? Now, that's just an off-to-the-side tradition. Take it as you will. But notice, the tree, there's got the uh, tree of life. That's the one with the fruit. Um, cleverly disguised as an apple. Uh, and it's got a serpent entwined on it. Anyone, other familiar stories of serpents on poles? Yeah, yeah Moses, okay. So you've got, you got so many themes throwing in there already. Then you've got these birds of the air hanging around the tree of knowledge. Anyone know a parable about the birds of the air? Yeah, the birds of the air are... The agents of Satan. Ooh. This knowledge that we are now having was meant to remain in heaven. We were not meant to have it. We have it now. A bit late. <laughs> Interesting thought, isn't it? And then there's a... They, they obviously, the, the lower part of the icon, they are driven out. They have uh, clothing now. Um, now, you've heard me say this before, but I'll ask it again. Where did God get the skin from? Sure, why not? Text doesn't say that. It says God God clothed them in skin. And you go, okay. Um, Right. Because, again, in in Jewish exegesis, and they'll say all kinds of things, like rabbits, deer, you know, all kinds of stuff. But they also say, one stream of, of, of tradition says, you know, God is life. God doesn't touch death. In fact, he didn't even bury Moses. The archangel Michael did, which we discover in the book of Jude. Okay? So, so how, did he, how did he touch skin then? I mean, that's not quite him, his character. So they say, well, there's another animal in the, in the garden, a snake. And God used the snake skin which again is his character. He makes right everything that's wrong. There was something wrong. God makes it right. Again, it's just a tradition. But there they are being driven away by uh, the angel with the fiery sword. And you have this one river that's in the garden, although in the Bible there are four rivers, but only one of them is really super, super, super important. Does anyone know which one? The Gihon. The Gihon River comes out of the Garden of Eden. Where's the Gihon River today? 
Yes. So according to Jewish tradition, where's the Garden of Eden? It's Jerusalem. Behind the church, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to get baptized, you get baptized there, okay? So tickets right in. Okay, yeah, and that's the reason why, uh, not, not the reason why, but it lends itself to the Jewish tradition of beginnings and ends or always, you know, uh, coming together in the same place that when heavenly Jerusalem meets earth again and, and, and they combine as they do in the Revelation, in the center of uh, Jerusalem, there's a tree. Tree of life. What was in the middle of the garden? Tree of life. Oddly enough, they're in the same spot. Just a tradition. But this, when I was looking for an, an icon, I wanted to, to dwell on the relationship part of the story that we read in Genesis. That when God made man, what did he do? He said, this is not good. Everything else he said it was good. Every, and every day, this is good, this is good, this is good, make man. Something's not quite right. What was wrong? Yeah, it is not good that man should be alone. So he made him woman. Lovely. And for all those modern progressives, he didn't make Steve. <laughs> Am I in trouble now? <laughs> I won't say that one tonight. <laughs> Maybe I should. Uh, he made man and a woman, and they were put into a relationship. But the relationship gets even better. Who comes down from heaven? God comes to join in that relationship. God could have simply stayed in heaven, very aloof, make man, you know, I've made the earth, the earth's my giant testing ground to see who can actually make it to heaven, right, where I am. Um, and you don't even, like a lot of people, some people here won't even believe that the Adam and Eve stories are true, right? They'll, it's, it's, it's all just fairy tales for some people. Uh, not for me, but, but even if it is a fairy tale, look at the hint that it's talking about. God delights to leave heaven and come and join his creation. He delights to meet with Adam and Eve. And he already knows what's happened. He's God, Yes. So it's not like he comes down and says, Adam, tell me about your day. Don't bother, I already know. Tell me about your day. I like hearing your voice. That's a nice thought. Now Adam and Eve had done something wrong. And God knew that. But he still came anyway. Now isn't that a nice thought? Yes, I know that sin does drive God from the camp. That is true. But in Jewish exegesis, there's also the other hand. So on one hand, sin pushes uh, the, the relationship apart. It can separate us. But on the other hand, God continues to pursue his world. Continues to pursue Adam and Eve. He comes down. He knows what they've done. Where are you? Probably already knows the answer to that question too. Adam and Eve doing their best there with their little fig leaves, which, of course, uh, as some of us know, um, leave a resin uh, as a skin irritant. So you can imagine uh, Jesus telling them, gee, that looks itchy, Adam. 
I think I'll um, help you out. The, the man says to God, I hid because I was. Is he naked? He's not, is he? He's not naked. He's got fig leaves on. So something a little deeper than just, I realized I was naked. And we've got to think. It says, Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, they were naked and they were without shame. And I decided to look at some of my commentaries that, you know, all priests are armed with. <laughs> and they sort of said, well, you know, this is before the fall. And, uh, you know, and, and so, but once we've had the fall, then um, we really don't like our own nakedness. Anybody here married? I'll tell you something about husbands and wives. They're okay being naked together. Seriously. You don't, you don't get naked and go, I'm really embarrassed about this, honey, but we kind of got to populate the earth, so close your eyes. It's not that type of nakedness. Something's deeper. Something's a lot more deeper going on here. And it's in the context of relationships, I think. Now, in Hebrew, there's a subtle difference between the words naked. In Genesis 2, it says man was naked, a room. Ein resh vav mem. And then, in the next time in Genesis 3, the one we read, a yud has been added. Irum. Now, the shoresh is the same. But if there's no difference, why did you add a yud? In, in Jewish exegesis, and in many Christian exegesis too, you can't just change words whenever you feel like it if there's no real meaning. So I went and I asked a bunch of rabbis, three, okay, bunch. They all said, yes, there's a difference, but I don't know what it is. But, okay. They, they, they note that there's a difference. And I think it's in the context of a relationship. Adam knew that he was naked inside. He's naked outside. He knew that too. But he also knew that there was a deeper level that he had he'd broken a relationship with God. The good thing is God still wanted to have the relationship with him. God was pursuing him. He was running away. And that's an interesting thought. And so sin, outside, doesn't scare God scares the pants off us. God can deal with sin. He's very good at it. We often run from the Lord. Too often. Too many times we think, okay, I've done too much. God won't answer my prayers anymore. I can't turn to him until I've done really good things. I'll pray after I've, done, I've worked in the, in the, in the drop-in center for six weeks. God will accept me then. God will accept you now. Let's identify that nakedness that's within us, as deep as it is, and bring it before the Lord, who didn't run away and covered it up, which is a delightful thought. And look at the, the psalm, which mimics these thoughts. Psalm 130, this song of ascent, as the pilgrims would be journeying up to Jerusalem. Are they perfect? No. 
There's not one, not one guy coming up to Jerusalem who says, well, I am so perfect, God's going to just, you know, allow me in. My brother-in-law, the building's going to collapse on his head. Okay? No. We knew that we had done wrong. And the psalmist says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But he turned around and said, listen to my voice. The, he was still crying out to the Lord. He, I know what I've done, but look, please. And in you is full redemption. You will take away the sins of Israel. What an incredible, powerful piece of hope. The relationship might be broken, but God wants me to come to him and talk with him. I will do that. The relationship will be healed. I will listen to him. He will listen to me. We will have joy and fellowship. It will be beautiful. Can that be every day, please? Yes. And when looking at the, the reading in Mark, keeping this theme of relationship and this sort of deep nakedness that we have, the thing that drives people away, uh, they drive, it drives them away. For God so loved the world that he kept himself hidden. No, for God so loved the world that he came. Which is a, a, a really, really good piece of good news. And so there's a relationships going on in our gospel portion. Uh, it's, it's, Jesus is very popular at the moment. So very early on in his career, as we would see it in the, in the gospels. But um, so full is the house, so popular is Jesus, that uh, his family are slightly nervous about this whole thing. So it's not that they go, wow, my boys are really dynamic uh, itinerant preacher. In the, in the late Second Temple period, that's when rabbis start. Right? You don't see any rabbis in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, when you go into the book of Acts, Paul doesn't meet one. You notice that? Goes into synagogues, no rabbis. Okay? Because they, they're, be, they're being invented almost around the time of Jesus. The first person ever called a rabbi in Jewish tradition is Gamliel. Hillel and Shammai aren't even called rabbis. But they're not. Okay? He's the first person ever called a rabbi happens to be Paul's teacher. And they're not well thought of. They are now. Because you're supposed to follow in your dad's footsteps. You're supposed to take care of mum and dad you know, with a job. What's this running around with a bunch of crazy men, living out in the wilds, living off everybody else's generosity. Who's caring for mom and dad? You're not doing your job. Guess who's heard that in their life? Every time my brother-in-laws, and I have five of them, would come and visit me, the first question is, have you been taking care of Michelle? Yes, I have, actually. But then they would say, Where's your house? Where's your car? Why haven't you got a pension? You're not providing. It hurt like heck. Because they're right. I got none of that. I got Jesus. So much better. Got a relationship that supersedes material things. Of course it does. You all know that. Let's internalize that for a good start. So Jesus' family, 
They think, oh my gosh, our boy's out of his mind. He's getting a little popular. He might instigate a social rebellion against the Romans. This could be a disaster. Lots of people might die. Come off the stage. Or as our text says, he's out of his mind. He's healing. He's he's, he's making people whole spiritually and physically. He's teaching the Bible like nobody's business. He's casting out demons. That's not good enough. Something very, very personal is going on in the relationship. Slightly skewed. Religious leaders show up, also got a problem relationship with them. Sometimes they defend Jesus. They do. You can read it in the Gospels that they look after him as one of their own. A good teacher, a healer, miracle worker. Be aware of Herod, that sly old fox. He's coming to get you. The Rabbi Gamliel defends the Jesus movement in Acts. Don't do anything to these guys. Leave them alone. If this is from God, you are fighting God. Stop it. Good advice. But here, and in all of the synoptics, they make a challenge. And they challenge him and say, you're, you're casting out demons by Baal-Zivuv. And you go, where did that name come from? The Lord of the Fly, Baal-Zivuv. Out of all the names you might want to call the demon, that's what we call him. Cool. But put it into its Second Temple period context. God is life. Everything about him is life. There is no darkness in him. None. He cannot even stand the smell of death to be in his presence. So if you've touched a dead body, and that might be a good thing to do, someone's got to bury dad, okay? That's a good thing, good thing to do. But you need to go have a mikveh, you need to wash yourself clean before coming to the Lord. I'm life, just keep death away from me. And so the antithesis of God is death. And where do you find flies? Everything that's dead or dying or decaying. They are carrion eaters. You don't find a fly. Actually, you find them everywhere because everything's dying. I'm trying to think, is there anything not dying where you don't find fly? Yeah, they stay away from margarine. Have you noticed that? Maybe you shouldn't eat it. But, and so they, they, they called the enemy the Lord of the fly, because he was the master of everything that was wrong. And they accused Jesus of being empowered by him. And so, of course, there's that little text uh, that says, uh, he said this because they were saying that he had an unclean, uh, unclean spirit. And many comments talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is telling every, saying to Jesus, you, you're inhabited by a demon. Uh, not 100% sure. Okay, but I want to put it into a relationship. God wants to have a relationship with us. He delights in it. He pursues us by his spirit. He's very good at it. Dreams, vision, friends, family, this thing called the ecclesia, people, missionaries, his word, really good rock songs on TV, all kinds of things to, to woo him to himself. But there are still people who refuse. And perhaps 
perhaps the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply a choice. Perhaps it's, I don't want a relationship with Jesus. I don't want what's on offer. I don't want forgiveness. Because I don't think I need it. You all know people like that. Yes, we do. For some of us, it's our families. For some of us, it's friends or work colleagues. But we all know people who just do not want to receive forgiveness. Isn't that an incredibly sad state to be in? And I know some people who were believers who have come to this stage. And I'm stunned by it. When I sit in their house and they say, I just don't want it. I don't want the relationship. Perhaps, perhaps that is what offends the Holy Spirit so much that he says, okay, up to you. But that's not going to be us, is it? So brothers and sisters, you know people who are in that state. So our job, our task, is to introduce them to this beautiful relationship that we can have with the Lord. That God wants to come and participate in a relationship with each other and in a relationship with Him. Regardless of how naked you feel, God can clothe all of it. Look at what happened to David. That, that, that interesting confession that we prayed today we were His words. Now you know what He did. And he turns around and says, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Can you imagine what the Holy Spirit was saying? Hey, uh, this guy's really bad. We, got a, we have to do a massive intervention here, okay? Don't take the Holy Spirit from me. I want this relation. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. May you all be restored to the joy of a beautiful relationship with the living God. So let's engage our friends and our family, do our best to introduce this wonderful relationship that we have with the Messiah who leaves heaven to come and talk with us no matter what we've done. And we will start right now by praying for them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bring before you creatures whom you created people whom you already know, people you delight, Lord, to be in a relationship with. We pray for those of our friends, our family, our work colleagues who have rejected your love and rejected your relationship and do not seek forgiveness. And we earnestly, Lord, would pray that in your mercy, in your unfathomable deep love for your creation, you would continue to woo them to yourself, planting inside of them the seed of faith that will nourish into a beautiful relationship, that they will be to us brothers and sisters, and they will be to you children of the living God. Humbly we would ask this in the risen Messiah, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, 
or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.